Hey everyone, this is Kevin here with The Messy City. We're just getting rolling on this podcast here in our first few episodes, and as I uh, learn and experiment on uh, how to actually do a podcast and do it well, uh, I'm also learning uh, about audio and quality and uh, recording techniques. So this podcast, which um, uh, was a great discussion, I really enjoyed with Abby Kinney and Dennis Strait, the audio quality is really just okay. Uh, so I'll definitely work to improve that in future sessions. And I hope you enjoy. Take care. Welcome, everybody. This is the Messy City Podcast. I'm Kevin Klinkenberg. I am delighted today to have two of my favorite Kansas City people here with me, uh, Abby Kinney and Dennis Strait, both with uh, Multi-Studio, formerly Gould Evans uh, in Kansas City. I'm still having a hard time with the name change, I admit. Sorry, Dennis. <laughs> I'm doing my best with it, but I, you know, I knew Gould we'll Evans for a workout regimen that we have. <laughs> I knew Gould Evans for a long, long time, so uh, it's an adjustment. Uh, uh, I want to thank you both uh, for joining me here today. We want to uh, have a focus, uh, talk about some Kansas City uh, issues, but uh, I think as always, a lot of the things we talk about uh, apply to lots and lots of other places, uh, especially uh, cities in the middle of the country. Um, but uh, I think uh, we will find through our discussions, I think you all have found through your many discussions over the years that the things that we talk about um, have applicability well well beyond our little corner of the world. Yeah. So uh, welcome. I do wanna start by uh, making sure people know who all you are. Uh, I, I don't like to assume everybody knows uh, Abby and Dennis, even though Abby is a very famous podcaster in her own right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, tell us just a, a little bit about uh, your background and how you came to be interested in uh, cities and, and urban communities. Uh, yeah, sure. So how far back do you want me to go? Well, you don't have to go back to birth. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm originally from the St. Louis metro area. I moved to Kansas City about, um, I think it's been 11 years, actually. So moved here actually to start uh, going to school for architecture. And that is how I learned about the practice of urban planning, urban design, um, the school that I went to here in Kansas City actually has a design-based program, which was a really easy transition for me uh, from, you know, being interested in design and then moving into that realm. So since I since graduation, basically, I've been working with multi-studio, formerly Gould Evans, uh, you know, Dennis and the crew here doing a lot of different planning, uh, types of planning work. We're kind of full service. So we do everything from uh, high level comprehensive planning, policy planning, it's all the way down to development, consulting, um, and working directly with cities on issues of zoning and, um, you know, interpreting development proposals and that sort of thing. So yeah, it, this is something that I've been incredibly passionate about for many years now. Um, I have been involved with uh, Incremental Development Alliance. We hosted a speaker series, which maybe we can talk about, where we kind of introduced that lexicon to the Kansas City Metro and have been um, hosting kind of regular, a regular grassroots meetup group that is focused on incremental development in the Kansas City area. Um, and then I've also been involved with the Strong Towns group, as you mentioned. 
uh, I host the Upzone podcast. So I've been doing that for three years now, if you can believe. Yeah, I know. I can't believe it. Uh, we started right before the um, pandemic and it's a, it's a current events podcast. So I thought we'd just be talking about regular things and then a global pandemic hit. And so, yeah. <laughs> um, so our news became very, very serious for quite a while there, but yeah. And it's a great podcast. Uh, I've been fortunate to be a guest a few times and uh, really enjoy it. Abby does a tremendous job. And uh, so I absolutely encourage anybody uh, in our world to listen to that podcast. They're also only a half an hour long, so they're very easy to, to fit into your schedule and, and digest. Depends how off track we get. Well, yeah, <laughs> that can happen. Uh, Dennis, I've known you for even longer than Abby, uh, but yeah. uh, what, uh, what should people know about you? Um, let me see. I started as a landscape architect. Actually, I, I, like Abby, went to school first to be an architect. And then I detoured into landscape architecture because the degree was shorter. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't mention that part. <laughs> uh, but I ended up, uh, I started my first few years as a landscape architect um, and then went back and got a master's and moved to Kansas City and ended up working in architecture like I'd planned, but always maintained the landscape architecture perspective on things. I've always had an interest in how cities work. Um, I grew up in a suburb without nerve because when I was in my uh, oh God, in my first 10 years of life, they tore down the uh, downtown of my small town, uh, small 100,000 person town. Uh, so it never had any place growing up. And I compared that to uh, uh, the trip we would take two or three times a year going to my grandparents uh, in Larned, Kansas, right in the middle of the state, 5,000 people, traditional uh, farm town that was as walkable as you'd want any town to be. And it's what we did. We'd walk from grandma's to the park or to the five and dime, and it was just a cool experience. And so that really probably set the stage for my love of walkable, livable places. Um, so that's, that's who I am. So I, I have to I have to ask a question about that before we move into anything <laughs> else, but have you been back to Larned much over the years and kind of compared what your image and experience was as a younger person versus how it is today. Uh, yeah, um, it's where it's where my people are from. I didn't grow up there, but uh, my folks all did. Um, so most recently, you know, some years ago now, but uh, when we buried my dad, I spent some time in Larned, um and had time to just hang around. Uh, so, you know, the romantic version of it is different from the real version of it. Uh, in a lot of ways, but um, uh, it's probably still the same town it was you know, many years ago. I was getting ready to say 40 or 50, but that's not the right number. <laughs> um, and if you look at it through real eyes, you know, it's it's not a vibrant uh, community in, in, in terms of uh, having a lot going on, but it's still a very livable and, and walkable place to be. Yeah, Beautiful neighborhoods and um, uh, you know, lovely parks, those kinds of things. Mm. So yeah, I've been back um, and it's not all rose colored glasses. It's still proof that if you plan a place well, uh, it holds value. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting because we we focus an awful lot uh, because we live here in a larger city and metropolitan issues. And that's kind of what we live and breathe, you know, most of the time. But uh, obviously most of the things we care about also apply to small towns and small communities mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, and you know, I knew I grew up basically in small rural communities mm -hmm. as well, and uh, 
you know, it's, it's easy to see how the changes we've had over the years with, you know, what Strong Towns calls the suburban experiment have also had an enormous impact on small towns, um, but without the growth cycle or the large growth cycle that you see in metropolitan areas. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's fascinating to kind of look at things through those lens and see, um, you know, how they've changed. There was a, there was a funny uh, tweet that I saw the other day um, that I, I think I made a smart comment on, which of course is just the whole point of Twitter, right? Uh, <laughs> but it was basically like in, in, in every small town um, that has a highway bypass, you'll find people sitting around the coffee shop um, complaining about the bypass and wishing there wasn't one. And every small town that doesn't have a bypass, yeah. <laughs> you'll find people sitting in the coffee shop complaining they wish they had a bypass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I can see those guys now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting deal. Um, so let's get into a couple of uh, Kansas City specific um, topics uh, at first. One of the things that I'm curious about, um, you know, in many ways, uh, we're we're in the middle uh, or in the early years, I would say, of sort of a renaissance uh, here in Kansas City and really a much a long desired renaissance. Um, and, you know, we had Dennis and I probably have the benefit of more years of experience of just kind of understanding how things used to be and some of what the conversation may have been 30 years ago uh, about our city and the real desire to try to bring people back. People are coming back now, which is great. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. We've got incredible momentum as a city. There's a lot of great news happening. We've got, you know, the Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. We've got the World <laughs> Cup coming. We've got development happening. Um, but in the midst of all this, there's this kind of interesting cultural shift that's happening that um, it seems to it seems to be gaining traction that development uh, is increasingly viewed in a negative light uh, in our city and developers also viewed in, in an increasingly negative light. So is that fair? You know, how do you perceive that? Is that a fair uh, assessment uh, of or uh, a fair frustration that people have with development uh, in our city? Um, do you mind if I start? Please. Because my reaction is uh, it probably is in the context we've created because uh, uh, we've defined the world of developers uh, pretty clearly um, because we've limited uh, what we think of as developers pretty clearly to folks that do a certain scale of buildings and who negotiate with cities for um, leniency usually on how they go about developing their property and uh, it's what you read about in the paper and so forth. Um, and uh, I suspect that um, uh, most people sense there's something wrong with that. Um, I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with the people who are the developers. I think most of them are like us. They're interested in building things and, you know, uh, in their own way, putting cities together. Um, but because we've limited the world that we talk about as development to just that strata. Um, we've eliminated everyone understanding that uh, when you remodel your house, you are a developer. Um, and when you help your community clean up your neighborhood, you're a developer. So there are lots of, uh, lots of ways we don't appreciate uh, because we don't focus on it enough and we don't allow it enough. And that's, and that's uh, the other part of the context problem of the word 
developer uh, because we need it to get to a point where people can actually build their neighborhoods again. Mm-hmm. Um, and until we do that, we're stuck with the world we're in, which is one that's uh, it's too limited and not allowing enough of our enough of us to participate in the city building process. Yeah, I completely agree with that. A lot of different things I'm thinking right now, but really fundamentally that the way that we've built neighborhoods has drastically changed over the past even 100 years. Um, the, the community of people who built our urban neighborhoods in Kansas City are not the same people as the ones who are mostly participating in real estate development today. Um, it's a very different model, and there's a lot of reasons for that model, uh, many of which are national, global kinds of uh, trends rather than something that we're doing here specifically in Kansas City that's somehow different. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that there aren't people who are entrepreneurial, who are doing small-scale development or incremental development in neighborhoods. I actually see that kind of development as a huge opportunity for many neighborhoods where the more um, institutional or corporate-scale developers likely won't be working anytime soon unless it's some kind of massively subsidized project. Um, So I, I think it's important to kind of make those distinctions between you know, what a, a small scale or mid scale and large scale developers are because development and building communities is not one thing. There's not one kind of developer. There's lots of different kinds of developers and lots of different intents that are driving people to want to build buildings and create spaces for residents or businesses or um, save historic buildings. There's so many different drivers there that I, and I think many of them are valuable. You know, one of the things that I, I wrestle with, uh, I, I, a lot of that obviously resonates with me. It's something we all talk about, you know, a lot, which is the, uh, the need for more incremental development, more small development, more bringing more people uh, into the process. There's also an issue just related to change, uh, and growth that, um, you know, I, I do find um, we have a hard time talking about it. Uh, and I think in large part is because some of the things we've talked about, how we've created a, not just a different culture of development, but a whole different attitude towards cities and how they change um, is that, you know, there's more of an expectation, it seems like now on the part of more people that like a city is built and then it's baked you know, or a place is baked and it's really not supposed to change Mm -hmm. very much. Um, Even with smaller change, you know, we see a lot of resistance. Uh, When we got the uh, accessory dwelling unit uh, or the granny flat uh, ordinance uh, approved last year, um, you know, we still had resistance uh, Mm -hmm. on that from a lot of people who live in neighborhoods, uh, even our local historic group um, that, that really pushed back on allowing broad scale incremental change like that. I'm just curious what what you might think about that and um, and just kind of the cultural context for, for even small scale stuff. It seems like yeah. it could be a struggle. You want to go first this time? <laughs> well, 
I, I can't remember who said this, so I apologize that I'm not able to attribute this to anybody, but people hate two things. They hate the way things are now and uh, what is the saying? They hate the way things are now and change. So um, I think it's important to for all of us to kind of confront the reality that cities are always changing. Cities are never stagnant. In fact, stagnation leads to decline. So the last thing you really want is for your community not to change. Um, But yeah, there is this ingrained mindset. And again, I don't think that it's something that is unique to Kansas City. I think every community has various people who have a lot of fear of change um, for reasons, some of which are valid, some of which may not be as valid. And it's important to kind of frame the context of the type of change that we're talking about and what it means for a community to change incrementally, for people to have a voice in how their community changes over time, how it's invested in, um, and being able to give feedback at times where it actually is valuable and can impact the overall process. so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, again, it's important to kind of make these distinctions between, you know, broad scale types of changes and these smaller types of changes that will make communities more resilient and stronger and keep them from stagnating. So I, uh, I'm sure that change has always been uh, uh, a fear people have because we uh, I'm a big believer in the old Maslow's Pyramid thing um, and <laughs> you work hard to get security in your life and to a stable place. And then you don't want somebody coming along and messing that up. Yeah. So that's human nature. What's not natural is the way we've institutionalized it and made um, resistance to change an entitlement. Um, that's something that's very modern, you know, in terms of the last 50 years um, yeah. or less. Um, that is a, an expectation that's a false expectation in terms of um, the way that we talk about building things. Because too often the things we're fearful of are not the real things we're talking about. Yeah. Because most people really don't understand the complexity of cities and they're, they're happy to take whatever line somebody feeds them about traffic or uh, uh other people and uh, until we can get to a much more sophisticated way of understanding how cities are built, which is asking a lot of the general populace. Yeah. It's tough to expect that change is going to be easy. So I, uh, I think it's, what's interesting to me is the growing comments that you hear, like we're hearing in some of our work now about folks who are uh, coming out and stating that uh, you're offending my property rights by challenging single family zoning. Um, um, which um, what they're saying is they don't want their neighbor to have the right to do something other than single family next to them and claiming it's a property right issue. But they're claiming it in a totally distorted kind of way because they're trying to protect the idea of property rights by not allowing property rights. Yeah. And that's just one example of the confusion that's common out there that just keeps good things from happening. Yeah, it's funny. It's like there's this... Uh, 
in the American context, there's this interesting dichotomy between how we sanctified the single family house and uh, protected it and encouraged it uh, with easier financing, uh, with a zoning system that basically protects those from, from change. Uh, and, um, you know, on the other hand, and, but of course, people expect to want to benefit from that. They, you know, everybody expects that the value of their house that they buy is going to improve uh, over time because it's our, it's most people's primary asset. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we have this kind of idea out here of that the, really the, uh, I would say the planning world, the, de- the design world in general has been promoting for a long, long time of like that we can achieve the perfect utopian sort of city if we just follow like certain certain administrative paths, you know, certain zoning rules and everything else. And, but they really come into conflict with each other in the real world because yeah. the, the real world is never static. It's always dynamic. Yeah. We've so distorted the, the notion of property value in terms of just expecting that your house should be an investment. Yeah. Um, your primary investment really. Well, and that it should grow in value. Yeah. Um, now that we've put a lot of practices in place that have uh, ensured that to happen with uh, the way we zone, the way we finance, and the way we regulate um, development. Um, but it's not a natural thing, and it's part of the problem. I mean, all those things I just said are are the reasons, at least the beginning list of reasons, why we have an affordability problem. But they're not natural. Yeah. They're imposed. Yeah, and it's not to say that uh, ownership is a bad thing. Ownership's a, a really good thing. Uh, and the good thing about it is it's sort of like a forced savings account, you know, for people. Um, but there's a difference between that yeah. aspect and the expectation that my house is going to grow in value at five or 10% a year. And it's going to be like a, a piggy bank that I can right. kind of tap into every so often. Well, and it leads to, you know, this is called the messy city podcast. And I think, that way and that that structure of creating housing as this investment actually lends to what is opposite of messy cities. People want things to be as orderly and clean and um, predictable as possible so that you can protect your investment, which is your residence. Now, this is, this is not the case for every single neighborhood. I'm a homeowner, single family homeowner in uh, a mess, I would say a messy neighborhood in a good way, uh, in some bad ways, but mostly good <laughs> ways. Um, and so this isn't the case for every neighborhood, but I think that when we're thinking of our neighborhoods as an investment, I'd really like to see ownership um, expanded beyond single family. Uh, for people who are not necessarily trying to purchase a single family house. And I'd like to see the culture shift from, you know, looking at the notion of a disorderly kind of uh, urban environment or neighborhood as something that is harmful to your investment, because I would disagree, actually. I think a lot of people, I think there's a lot of value in places that are messy cities, right? Uh, places that are unique and interesting. But the way that we've structured our culture and expectations around single family neighborhoods have created very um, 
orderly and not very interesting neighborhoods in the last 20, 30, 50 years. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I've told the story a few times about how the first house that I purchased was actually a triplex. Um, it was actually an old house that just had been divided up into three units. So mine is an old and, duplex that had been created into yeah. one unit. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, which, you know, and there's always, historically, there's been this back and forth. Yeah. Um, where you were allowed to make those changes uh, before a lot of our zoning became so rigid. Uh, so I, I appreciate that, and, and I benefited from that approach. As a, as a younger person, I was able to buy a place pretty inexpensively, uh, live in it, rent out the rest of it, and, and have that kind of pay the mortgage. And that was really a great, uh, a great way for me as a young person to get started in ownership. And it was kind of fascinating. Uh, earlier, Early last year, with my siblings, we took a trip to uh, Syracuse, New York, to visit family. My mom's uh, family is all from Syracuse. And so we visited some family members. We did a bit of sleuthing, kind of going around town, looking at the different places where uh, my grandparents lived and where my mom lived growing up, uh, which was um, most of where they lived were really, really poor. Uh, neighborhoods. My mom grew up for quite a few years in a housing project uh, in Syracuse. Uh, and then when they got a little bit more money, it was fascinating to see that like one of the things they did is they lived in a duplex, you know, or, or a family member might have bought a duplex uh, as, as a way to live. And how, you know, 100 years ago, 60, 70 years ago, that that was incredibly common. Uh, and gradually, we've just kind of gotten away from that and pigeonholed ownership as just this one thing, like the mm -hmm. single family detached house, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, their single family houses are great and I live in one now and own one and they're wonderful. But you know, it's, I think one of the things you all talk about a lot is it's not the be all end all of ownership or lifestyle. Well, it's become the American dream. It's a definition of success, right? If you yeah. have that. And so it's the reason why people fight so hard to protect it. Um, but we've paid a pretty high price for all the uh, uh, systems we've put into place to prop it up. And that's part of the challenge. You're, you were talking about your experience with uh, multifamily, essentially, which uh, reminded me that that takes me back to the nostalgia discussion I had a little earlier about uh, Lauren at Kansas, because grandma's house was um, uh, a bungalow and uh, was uh, an amazing house because uh, I, I grew up thinking she lived in this giant house. Um, it was probably 1,200 square feet, which was a nice size house, um, but it had five bedrooms and two full apartments in it um, because she had set it up um, so that the three upstairs bedrooms, which all shared one small bath and they were small bedrooms. <clears throat> um, for most of the time I was growing up, up until my teen years, she was leasing those on a, to boarders. She was and she, and she was uh, making lunches for people. Hmm. And, you know, I, it is interesting as a kid, I never thought twice about that. Yeah. You know, that that's why the door shut off going upstairs is because yeah. grandma's leasing the rooms out. And she, she and my grandfather had subdivided the basement into two apartments and they, that's how they afforded to live in uh, their retirement years. Um, and again, it was commonplace for me growing up, but, you don't see that anywhere anymore. It's pretty rare to find it. Any, just talking about a boarding house brings yeah. back, you know, in most people's mind, the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. Um, 
and it was right in the middle of this cute neighborhood that I loved and mm -hmm. still would. Yeah. So. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it makes me think of Airbnb. <laughs> One of your the original. Topics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but, I, and we don't have to go into talking about Airbnb, but, you know, I think that was kind of the original intent, right? For people to be able to, who, who live in their house to be able to rent out extra rooms and extra right. space. And um, so now, you know, it's kind of shifted from being for the other side of the tracks to, um, I don't know, something a little more, I guess, boutique seeming. Yeah. 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 We'll probably, we probably should do a whole podcast about I know. vacation rentals uh, sometime <laughs> yeah. and the whole controversy and issues around them. It's, they're actually really fascinating once you get yeah. into it to, try to dissect the different uh, attitudes and controversies uh, around them as they relate to, especially as they relate to urban neighborhoods. So, you know, one of the things that um, you all have been doing now uh, for several years is not just talking about these issues. Obviously, you, you work with clients all the time. So you have these conversations with clients and communities. But here in Kansas City, you have taken a proactive effort uh, to try to build more awareness around these issues. Uh, and uh, in, a, in some of it's building off of what Strong Towns talks about as an organization. Some of it is, you know, your own experience and, and efforts over the years. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I think there's some potential lessons for other people. How many years now is it that uh, you've had sort of these efforts? <laughs> what, what do you think you've learned from all that, you know, sort of where do you, where do you see it going forward? Because it's interesting about trying to build really more of a grassroots interest in, in issues that, you know, are very niche to people like us. Well, the story for the speaker series and the public uh, advocacy was, um, um, uh, our planning studio got together back in oh wait, 2017 uh, to do strategic planning. We're gonna put together a five-year plan and I've been with that group for some time and uh, you know, not surprising when we get into planning, what do we, where do we want to take things next? Uh, there's a lot of discussion about all the dumb things we keep having to deal with uh, and the frustrations that this city's doing the same thing that city's doing. And, and it got to a point where finally I just said, well, we just ought to, we just ought to start calling ourselves the stop doing stupid stuff studio. <laughs> And make That's that the our clean mantra. version, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, other people have adopted the other one. But, uh, and we ought to focus on that. And the silly part was to stop doing stupid stuff. But the real part was recognizing that we're, we're, we were often in a situation where we're helping a community react as opposed to proactive. Yeah. So um, we've adopted that more proactive approach in our work, but we've also recognized that um, these discussions are uh, all about incremental change. Um, and that's one of the lessons, if you want to talk about the lessons that we've learned. Um, <clears throat> but uh, staying with the reason why we started the speaker series was to uh, help a, a, a complex city like Kansas City Metro uh, understand the challenges that we're recognizing and Strong Towns and others have really helped us understand. Um, uh, by the time you get to a project at a city that scale, you your ability to have open conversations about general problems is usually pretty limited. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to to 
uh, share that understanding in a different way. And that's why we created the speaker series and the lecture series that we do. Um, and it's been, it's been gratifying to see the, um, the very incremental, you know, humbling too, to see how uh, you put a lot of effort into something and it's not really clear that you're moving the needle, but you do see some indicators. You see enough to keep you going. And then you learn after five years of doing this that it is a very incremental game yeah. uh, to the point that you know, I, I just have accepted that um, the mess that we've created over the last 75 years is likely to take 50 to 75 years to fix. So I've become much more patient in this whole enterprise uh, than when we started. Well, and it's not just us who are trying to fix things and kind of revert things back. Um, I'm sure Strong Towns feels the same way that, you know, they're they're putting things out there and it's very incremental, but it takes other people to take up these issues, not just people who are planners or architects, but people who are neighborhood advocates, city council people, people working on planning commissions. Uh, You mentioned that a lot of these topics kind of feel like they're kind of niche. And I, I feel like in the urban planning and architecture world, it can feel like a lot of these topics are, but I really don't think they are niche. I think that they can be communicated in ways where that resonate to really anybody. Um, and I think that's, it's of course been, I think the failure of uh, planners over the last 70 years, and I'm sure other people who are working in various professions that things become very mystified as if the general public can't understand their own neighborhoods or issues that they're interested in. And so I think as a planner, it is in people who are interested in in building cities, I think it's important that we kind of level the playing field in terms of how we communicate and frame things. So it, it feels niche, but Maybe it's not. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think that you know that's a fair comment, and uh, we have made it you know a little too like head in the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> over the years, and it doesn't need to be. Uh, it's not it's not rocket science after all. No, but it is change. Yeah. So back to yeah. that fear issue. Um, uh, you know, one of the things you learn when you start doing public speaking is that uh, you can get a lot of excitement out of a room and. Uh, you feel like you've got some momentum and it all dies by the time they get back home. Um, And it's, you know, you learn that it's because people have all their own problems in their lives and their own priorities. And, you know, that was interesting. And uh, that probably is a problem too. Right. So it just adds to their, uh, their awareness, but it doesn't really, it doesn't create disciples necessarily. Right. Just because you're, you're helping uh, people understand a part of their lives better. And just, it's a slow process of putting all the puzzle together about, oh, that relates to this. And it makes sense that we ought to be moving a different direction. So how, how would you assess then, or how do you think about the success of uh, the speaker series? So like one, one of the things you've done is you had a multi-year speaker series where you brought people in from out of town, some of the bigger names uh, in, in our world uh, and other people who've done thing at the local level. Uh, and then you've also created your own uh, presentation that you have done around the Kansas City area quite a bit. Um, you know, some of those presentations that, that with speakers from out of town have had hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of people in the audience. 
uh, was actually when I came back to Kansas City, one of the things that I thought, like, wow, this is really cool. There's <laughs> there's like an energy here that, you know, I don't remember from 10 years before and it's exciting. Um, so how do you how do you think about the success of that and what what might you want to do next? Um, well, I, I think part of the success of the early ones was uh, I'll give credit to the Strong Towns organization. Um, uh, because they have a following. So when we had the first sessions, we had Chuck Marone and Joe Minicazzi, and um, uh, that was not so hard to get a lot of people to turn out because I think as they're learning, there are a number of people that are appreciating what you can learn through the Strong Towns uh, uh, organization. Um, so we had a, a built-in following for the first ones. Um, the more recent ones we've done have been much more specific about uh, building equity and folks that are doing that in different parts of the country, um, which is a very important issue in all cities and certainly in ours. Um, but that's a much more niche discussion because not not enough people are really appreciative of the, the importance of that and how difficult that is. Um, so we're you, know, you balance on uh, 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 that's what we're working on the current roster of speakers for this year and it's uh, trying to find a balance of uh, getting uh, a good turnout so that it's worth all the effort of, of us and our partners that, at the library uh, to make it happen um, but at the same time have something that's really helping to move the discussion go forward so that it's it's meaningful and uh, can help you know the understanding about issues we're trying to deal with here in our, our city. I mean Abby uh, do you find uh, people your own age, people in circles you run in, do they, uh, uh, do they talk about these issues? Do they, they feel like they have connected with the speaker series or anything else that has gone on related to this kind of uh, advocacy effort? So not people my age who are not in this world of planning. I think for a lot of planners in the metro, especially younger planners, um, a lot of people have been engaged and doing really excellent work in their communities. So I'm encouraged by that. Um, I am, I won't share my age, but I'm relatively <laughs> young. So I think uh, young enough to Younger a point, <laughs> yeah, young enough to a point where many people my age um, may not appreciate these issues to the extent that they may when they're a little bit older. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that is, a little bit of a tangent, but I'm just curious about it. You know, so like the three of us, we're, you think about it, we're actually all designers. Mm -hmm. That's really our background. And a lot of the people who come to these events come from the design world. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why is that? What's, what's up with that? You know, that we see so many designers who latch onto these issues mm -hmm. and have connected with this need for reform of our cities more so than people in business, people in finance, people in other uh, areas uh, of professional life or otherwise? Hmm. Well, um, as someone who's managed an architectural practice for 30 years, um, uh, I'll overgeneralize. Uh, designers are, are folks that see opportunity and see how things could be different. Um, that's just their, their perspective. Um, and uh, it's probably easier for them to understand 
problems and that problems can be solved and that we just need to look at what options we have. Um, so that's, that would, that would be part of the reaction to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my reaction is that designers, designers are in a unique position where they do see opportunity to change things and to some extent have a sense of responsibility to make things better for people um, and a sense of stewardship. However, when it comes to how our cities are built and influenced, it's often not architects and urban planners that I think have the most influence in how our cities are shaped. There's a lot of other factors. Um, A lot of people who have no background in design are, are significantly influencing how our streets are designed, what kinds of investments we're making in highways and roads and uh, real estate development. So uh, I think that, you know, for planners, especially people who have a design background and architects and designers generally, people who are interested in the well-being of communities have this sense of needing to interject where it's possible to improve outcomes although it is limiting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, designers generally are not in a position of power yeah. uh, or authority. Uh, and we're, ten, we're probably drawn to things where we uh, like sitting down and solving a problem. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't always lend itself to, you know, the sort of big public decisions, you know, that get made. It kind of reminds me, like years ago, uh, when I was on the board of AIA Kansas City, we used to talk a lot about why why can't we get like more architects to run for public office, <laughs> and uh, you know it's it, it's a challenge. A lot of architects just don't think that way, yeah. or uh, you know they're just mentally they're more focused on projects and clients and solving smaller problems. But there's a huge benefit from having that mindset, you know, attached to policy and other initiatives that are put forward. Uh, and I still don't think we've had any architects run for office in, in our city. There have been some in a few other cities. Here Not recently. Yeah. We've had some in the past. It's never too late. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, one other thing I'm, I'm curious about. I vote for Abby. By the way. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> we'll line it up right now. All the support for Abby. Uh, you know, one of the things that we do a lot of. Uh, also in, in, in sort of the work that you do, and we're really trying to focus a lot on Kansas City and uh, the context of being in the Midwest. So, there's a, I mean, there's a really different context of being in a city that's not a coastal city. Mm-hmm. For example, our our development context is vastly different uh, from New York, D.C., uh, San Francisco, Seattle, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Uh, and some of that is that we're just generally we've been more off the radar for a long period of time for large scale development for you know high growth etc. Uh, but I'm curious about you know as you as you work through uh, the, the work that you all do do you think about that do you think about how the things that we do here are embedded as part of like a midwestern context at all or or how that might be different than if you went if somebody wanted you to come to uh, Boston and, and give a presentation. Oh, I, um, 
I certainly recognize this is a very Midwestern discussion that we're having the way we have it, at least the way I, I have it and think about it. Um, uh, so I might not answer your question, but I'm going to take it somewhere else. That's fine. <laughs> uh, because we can come back to it if we need to. <laughs> um, I think our situation in the Midwest is the, uh, the advantage that cities like Kansas City and Indianapolis, Cincinnati, you know, Oklahoma City, whatever, have um, the fact that our cost of living in terms of home ownership and uh, just uh, cost of housing is so much less than those cities that you're talking about, those successful cities that uh, have grown to a scale where um, you know, for our folks in our San Francisco studio, I don't know how they're ever going to, in that city, how they're ever going to find a way to address affordability because it is so out of whack. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, here in Kansas City and others, we our relative affordability is still pretty good. And uh, I think it's our... It's our key for economic development. If we could, if we could act on it and find ways to to preserve that affordability, and we know there are ways to do that. They're they're not easy solutions, but um, if if we could do that, we would offer an alternative to folks that most cities don't have. Um, now, really proud of the fact that over the last twenty and thirty years, Kansas City has grown quite a bit. There's been a lot of momentum since when I first came to town 35 years ago. Um, so we have plenty of amenity now that we can compete with many cities our size and larger. Uh, and we have 30,000 people living downtown, which is 30,000 more than we had 30 years ago, which is a, <laughs> you know, it's a great thing. Uh, so we've got things we can build with. Um, and if we could cap that value and, and allow that to persist going forward, what more do you need to be a, uh, a desirable city? Because I'll match our our park system to anybody else's. And uh, you know, again, our, our quality of life here is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So that's the part that's not seen that has um, been a struggle for me is to uh, get people to, uh, to think that way about uh, uh, strategies of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it is complex because it goes all the way from, uh, you know, initial solutions that might be uh, neighborhood trust or uh, land trust to, uh, you know, the complexity of a value capture tax. But we know if we had those things in place, we could capture that value and we could stem the tide of inflation that's driving the affordability problem out of reach for most cities. Yeah. Uh, but we haven't we haven't gotten enough attention on that. I haven't been good enough in terms of a, an advocate to help people see that opportunity. Uh, but it is a unique opportunity that many Midwestern cities have. Mm-hmm. And I think some of them are going to figure that out and they're going to have very successful futures. Uh, well, yeah, and I think that um, small and mid-sized cities in the Midwest, but also generally do have a strategic advantage to be able to try things um, in bottom-up kind of ways for, I was just talking about the the influence that designers actually have on the built environment. When I think of coastal cities, large cities, New York, San Francisco, that to me feels even more out of reach, even more complex, even more challenging to even wrap your head around, not just from a political perspective, but 
from the financial perspective as well. So mid-sized cities, small cities are really, I think, the secret place where we can start to throw some solutions and try different things in order to address not just affordability, but our infrastructure crisis and all kinds of other issues that communities are dealing with. It's almost like we have more uh, room for experimentation. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, in college and then graduating college, you know, one of the one of the common places everybody wanted to go to uh, from architecture school was Chicago, right? Yeah. And Chicago is effectively the capital of the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, and it's an amazing city. It's a wonderful place. Uh, and it was kind of seen, you know, there were all the big firms were there. People were doing really sexy, exciting work. Uh, and so a lot of architects really wanted to go to Chicago. Um, and I, I certainly felt that, you know, as a young person as well. And there was sort of a, a, a glamour to being in a city like that. Um, stayed around Kansas City and, you know, eventually came to really learn and appreciate a lot of what you're talking about. The, one of the unique things about uh, Kansas City is not a small city. Uh, we're over two million people now in a metro area, so we're not small by any means. But we're small enough that uh, even a young person can get involved um, pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, whether that is purchase a house uh, or whether that's just make a difference in their profession, be active, mm-hmm. you know, participate in civic life, it's much, much more accessible in cities of our size and smaller than it is in the big cities. So that's, you know, that was always kind of one of the upsides of being here or being in a city like this. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's always trade-offs with every, every choice you make, but that, that was always a, one that I enjoyed. Well, and even as somebody who's consulting to people in other cities, um, I'll just say that working in the context of mid-sized, smaller, and Midwestern cities, it's, it's a lot easier to be able to consult and make recommendations versus when you're working in kind of a large machine where yeah. it's much more challenging to, um, to affect the changes, to, to translate what a community wants into the political machine that yeah. sometimes really large cities can be. Yeah. Uh, so we are, one of the things, we're, we're in an election cycle here in mm-hmm. Kansas City, Missouri. We have a very odd election cycle in our city that happens in these odd years, and we have elections in April and June that are coming up. So it's just I say that because it's kind of a good time to, to think about like four year cycles and, uh, you know, whether that's a political cycle or not, it's kind of good to think about, well, whatever, whenever that happens, it's almost like there's a transition to like a new phase in how people think about their city. So one of the things I'm curious about with both of you is one or two things in, in our city that you would really like to see happen uh, or change or any, any kind of activity or action take place uh, in, in, say, that next four years? What, what's something that you think about that you think, boy, it would be really great if we could start to see progress on this or something we could really get done uh, as a city? Urban core rehabilitation and reuse of vacant lots is the thing that I think is a huge challenge that we have right now. There are so many reasons not to do small-scale development projects within our urban core because it is a lot easier to build a shopping center 
on the edge of town and not deal with all of the challenges underneath the ground of vacant lots or the complexity of our zoning or the politics that may be involved with projects. So in my opinion, I'd love to see our council take that on as a priority to make it as desirable as possible to do small scale development projects, both rehabilitation of existing historic buildings as well as building new buildings and neighborhoods. We have so many missing teeth. We have all, all of this existing infrastructure that is not being utilized in the extent that it should. So that would be my priority. Uh, I'll build on that then. I'd already shared the perspective about uh, the value uh, that we are sitting on that we're not capturing in terms of the affordability that we naturally have. Um, uh, and all the things you just talked about, uh, are available in a wide swath of our city. That's, uh, still very evident to anybody that pays attention to the development pattern in Kansas city because of the, the long-term impacts of redlining. So you can see that real clearly. And we still have a very clear boundary line as much as we've worked for the last 30 years to overcome it. We still have a very clear boundary line that shows up in every demographic map and health map and, and uh, uh, household income map where it goes from white to black and mm -hmm. it drops precipitously. Um, so we, particularly in our profession, we are very attuned to that. We've learned, you know, what we've done to ourselves in terms of uh, uh, bad public policy, bad practices that um, certainly shouldn't do anymore and we should be thinking about ways of uh, uh, remediating those things uh, and it's a great opportunity just like i mentioned in terms of the affordability uh, we have this opportunity in our city uh, because it's so clear in that area and so disinvested there uh, and it's an area of the city that's as proximate uh, shares the same kind of address benefits as the healthiest part of our city uh, but it's just been treated wrong for the last 50, 75 years. So if we could be progressive enough to get on top of the affordability issue and the equity issue, uh, not only could we become a much more uh, financially sustainable city because we'd be capturing all that value that we've disinvested right in the heart of our city through smart reinvestment. Um, we're smart enough as a people now to know that we could put policies in place that allow for those communities to benefit from it and to grow along with it and to, you know, start to balance the scales a little bit more mm -hmm. in ways that other cities just don't have that option because again, we've suppressed things mm -hmm. in that side of the equation. And we can either sit back and watch them gentrify in terms of the traditional way we think about gentrification and all the issues will bubble up around it. And we'll have some limited success on maybe some policies we'll put into place out of guilt, uh, or we can get on top of it and we can put, we need policies today because gentrification is already happening. We're just not seeing it or hearing about it enough, but if we can get in front of it and and set the stage for local communities to benefit from the reinvestment that's going to happen just because there's valuable real estate that's been neglected for the wrong reason for many years. Um, we could have a big change happen here in Kansas City, which could be um, not only 
extremely healthy for our city and our overall community, but also healthy for other cities to see what uh, equity really means in terms of a development strategy for your city. Well, and I think the time is now, right? Because we've been complacent for a very long time and reactive, quite frankly, when it comes to addressing issues within our urban environments. Now, Kansas City is kind of on the radar, right? We are really sports Mm -hmm. (laughs) is putting us on the radar. (laughs) We have the Super Bowl, our third Super Bowl that's coming up uh, in just a week from this Sunday. And then we have the World Cup that will be coming to Kansas City and the city is growing. And so this is the opportunity for us to really start to address these things now. It's the best time to do it would be basically yesterday, but today's second best. Uh, I would probably put a plug in. It's always so hard for me to talk about, you know, what we could or couldn't do. It's like the list ends up being obsessively long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I would put a plug in for uh, finding ways for us to really get better much more quickly on public space, on the, the design and management of public space. You know, I think you referenced before we have, we have a wonderful parks system in our city a historic park system that's been with us for 130 years. Uh, but we're, we've never been very good at urban public space. And uh, so whether that is sort of a more traditional urban, you know, public plaza or even just the sidewalks and streets uh, of our city, uh, my hope is that uh, we can really get better and focus on that a lot in the next few years, especially as you're right with welcoming the World Cup to Kansas City, which is a really big deal for, for our city and the city of our size, uh, to bring in visitors from all over the world, to uh, really show people that we can uh, welcome them in high-quality public space would be nice. Uh, so that, that's probably my one thing for now, Well, uh, in, that, a, in addition to yours, which I think are also excellent. But. Well, that's a it's a big lift. And it's something that I think also lends itself well to an incremental approach, right? Right. Because not every street probably needs a massive redesign, although they could use it. (laughs) Um, As as you know, you've been involved in projects where we have kind of incremental uh, approaches to improving public ground that make a huge difference. And our city's Vision Zero initiative has resulted in some smaller scale curb bump outs and that sort of thing that have, I'm, we have one in my neighborhood and it's yeah. made a huge difference. So I think that's really how we need to be thinking about yeah. improving public space. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We have a, we have a little park uh, over on Main Street that we, you know, we got a grant from AARP a couple of years ago and just did $25,000, you know, which was wonderful to get that grant. It was amazing how far that money could go to really uh, start to improve uh, a neglected public space. And we've got places like that all over the city that don't require, you know, $50 million investments, uh, but targeted investments to really help improve them uh, would be wonderful. So uh, I want to start to wrap up. Uh, I really thank both of you uh, for doing this today. Uh, This is the Messy City Podcast, so I want to end by... Uh, having your contribution to when, when you think about a, a messy place, uh, maybe something more bottom up and 
organic in nature. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be local. It can be anywhere. What's what's a place that you think about that you really that you love? I'm going to throw out my own neighborhood. I knew you were going to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love my neighborhood uh, in Kansas City. So. I, I hopefully I don't get stalkers from this, but I live in the Columbus Park neighborhood <laughs> of Kansas City, which is basically like our little Italy. Um, it's a small kind of enclave that was built in the 1890s. And what I appreciate about the neighborhood is that there's basically every housing type in the neighborhood and the architecture reflects every era of development, including... 70s, 80s, 90s style <laughs> suburban what we, houses. What we even. call the unfortunate era. Yeah, the, so. the unfortunate era, even modern houses that have been, uh, or contemporary rather, houses that have been built more recently. So I actually have a lot of appreciation for that. We have these really narrow, small lots that I think lend themselves well to uh, a messy environment where you have so much going on because even one, if you have a little house that, you know, maybe is all garage on the front, at least the lot is only 25 feet. And so you can move on. And um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that we have that kind of development pattern and all of these different housing types and businesses mixed into it. It's a neighbor, it's a very unique neighborhood yeah. in context for Kansas City. Yeah, in many ways, I thought you were going to say it's because it reminds you of St. Louis. It does <laughs> remind me, yeah, it does remind me of St. Louis, although I grew up in the suburbs yes. of St. Louis, so. Yeah. Dennis? Um, mine's local, too. It's the uh, 39th Street District, um, which it's kind of hard to put that into the same discussion as your plea for urban space, because... Yeah. It's pretty ragged, yeah. um, but I just love the fact how organic and homegrown it is. Um, uh, you know, some of the best bookstores, best uh, restaurants, and uh, it's it's got little to do with the uh, city plan, or it's got nothing really to do with that. It just has to do with the um, folks finding value in what used to probably be a streetcar community and building on that fabric to rebuilding on that fabric to make a, uh, a neighborhood commercial center. Yeah. yeah. And that's my neighborhood. So we talked about Abby's neighborhood and my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Fantastic. Uh, well, we will definitely do this again at some point. I think I'd like to have uh, regular discussions about Kansas City with, uh, with you all, with other people that we're all friends with and colleagues with. Uh, and spice up the discussion more. And I think, it, I think it provides some good lessons for people in a lot of communities, especially a lot of uh, communities in the central part of the country. So thank you all so much. Appreciate Glad to do it. it. Yeah, thank you. It's a fun conversation. Thanks.